News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast in the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Christina Greer and Katie Onan. Hello. Hello. Hi, Harry. Hey. Joining us very shortly will be State Senator Zellner Myrie to discuss his proposal for New York State to simply give migrants their own work permits and let the feds challenge those permits in court if they want. It's extremely relevant as Adams is talking about migrants destroying New York City, announcing 5% across the board cuts for all city agencies with more to come, he says, if he doesn't get help right away from Washington. There's a lot to dig into there. But before we get to that and as we're recording on the uh, anniversary of 9-11, Joe Biden is in Alaska for some reason. Uh, it's a painful day for a lot of New Yorkers. There's a whole generation that's been born since who this is in some sense history to incredibly uh, to think about. And there may be more on that later in the show. But we have one much lighter note that we must hit first. Uh what stinks more than a public toilet? And it turns out the answer is people in a $5 million condo who live above said public toilet in a park. That's my editorial view. Uh, but Katie, Onan, <laughs> you just reported a story on this. Phil, I don't have any in. opinions. So I don't, um, yes. I, you know, and it's funny. I got, I saw this because. Like I often do, I think, God, I need to, I need to get some story ideas. Let me check the city record. Um, I think because I have such a childish sense of humor, I saw a listing for an expert on bathroom acoustics at the Brooklyn Bridge Park. And I was like, oh man, are people like farting really loudly in this public bathroom and they need to fix it? And unfortunately, it was mainly the flushing and the hand dryers, but this is what Led me to the story, and then I found out that there was a lawsuit from 2020. And it, and you know, it, the short version is, um, you know, the pier house condos. Those are the condos that you see. Um, at least I see when I'm driving east on the on the BQE, and I look. And if I'm stuck in traffic, I'm glad to be stuck in traffic there because then I look inside everyone's apartments, um, and I kind of look and I go, "Ooh, look! They have floor to ceiling bookshelves. They have a really big piece of art." Um, <laughs> they're literally in a park, right? Like they live yeah. in a uh, in a park. Exactly. So, you know, Brooklyn Bridge Park, when it was first, uh, first, it opened in phases and 10% of the park is private. You know, you have a hotel adjacent to the condos and that's partly, you know, the, the, the private buildings on it and development is to help pay for the park. Right. And that's a, a very controversial. My old colleague and friend, Rosie Goldenson has written a lot of stories about this for at DNA Info, rest in peace, um, about, you know, the board members who got condos and all that kind of stuff. So this already is a controversial thing. I know people in the neighborhood were complaining that the new condos were uh, affected their view. But yeah, so a couple bought a nearly $5 million, uh, five-bedroom, four-bathroom duplex condo in this complex in 2019 above a public restroom. And now the public restrooms are required, again, as part of this deal, you built in a public park, um, you need to have amenities. And almost immediately, they started complaining about this incessant noise, the flushing, um, the hand dryer, you know, you have those industrial strength hand dryers, the noise of the stall door creaking. They complained about a gate right outside. They complained about a storage room. They also complained about the, apparently when trucks hit the BQE, it's loud. I could have told you that. Um, and it was just really, it's still in litigation. Um, 
the city, before they even sued uh, the developer of the building and Brooklyn Bridge Park, renovated this bathroom. And it was closed from March 16th, 2020 until July 4th, 2020. You know, a time, and obviously there's just larger context of there not being enough public restrooms in New York City, and, and perhaps people needed to use the restroom going to this park. They sued in September 2020 because the renovations did not help. Um, and it's just been this ongoing fight. They've, they've had the bathroom shut down. The city has had to fight to, to keep it open because, of course, the Brooklyn Bridge Park is a corporation that jointly runs it almost in the way, you know, the Brooklyn Navy Yard's relationship to New York City. Um, so, yeah, the city is trying one more time. I mean, it, this, it's not a guarantee they'll renovate the bathrooms again. They're just hoping there's some sound engineer. I don't know. Maybe Adam can help. But, uh, yeah, I think it's <laughs> as soon as I saw it, I think it's such a, um, you know, the homeowners in their lawsuit said that they had no way of knowing that these noises would be there. But I think, you know, I, I live by the seven train. I, 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 I no, hear no, the train. The, I would have. The BQE is invisible <laughs> as is the uh, public toilet that's already there until you, uh, until you sign the mortgage, I believe, or, or pay yeah. all cash, but more likely. I don't know how, I don't know how often they, they visited this. I don't know mm-hmm. um, how much time they spent. Um, again, people have very different financial realities than mine. So maybe they, bought a $5 million condo site unseen. I'm not sure. Um, they've also said that it's lowered the value of their apartment, but. Um, okay. Here's, here's <laughs> the thing. Chrissy weighs in. <laughs> don't move to a city. If you need silence, move to the suburbs. I don't care if you didn't visit the place you're next to a highway and you're in a public park. Did you think it was going to be Westchester? Like this makes zero sense to me. And I think, Part of why I'm coming in hot is because it feels a little bit like the stories we're reading about the lead up to the Caribbean Day Parade, where folks yeah. were like, I don't like the practicing. Then don't move <laughs> to Brooklyn. You know, it's it's Caribbeans and our parade is our parade. So it's like people who want to be in the city without any noise of the city don't need to be in the city. And yes, we do have an issue with noise pollution. I have terrible hearing. And I think it's because I was born and raised in cities. So noise pollution is real. I get it. But don't move to a public park next to a highway and then complain every day that it's too loud. First of all, you're supposed to visit a place that you're going to buy and or rent several times at different times of the day so you know what kind of element is going on. And clearly, if they had done that, they would know that a public bathroom is going to make noise. Katie, you weren't here last week when I was basically saying, you know, the Moynihan Fellow at City College. And now I have four university IDs in the city of New York. And it's largely just because I need places to go to the bathroom oh, and wash yeah. my hands. So I'm just, I'm looking at you, new school. You're next. Um, because I, I just need to to have space. So we get it. Public restrooms are something that New Yorkers need. Families need them constantly. If you've ever been with a child, Harry will know. Like at the most random times, kids are like, I've got to go to the bathroom. What? Like, what are we supposed to do? So it's a great service that the city provides. And realistically, if you've ever been in one, they're relatively clean. Yeah. Thinking of the 9 million people that live in the city. So I think my frustration is gentrifiers, who aren't always white, by the way, like gentrifier is like a term, but people who come into the city and then want it to be the suburbs and they get mad when they don't have pristine conditions, and absolute silence. Go home. To quote Eric Adams, go back to Ohio, wherever you went, wherever <laughs> you came from. 
<laughs> they're suing the Brooklyn Bridge Park Corporation. So so basically, the people who uh, operate the park they live under, it's Katie's story. Go to the city.nyc and read it. It's uh, quite the hate read, if I may say so. I was looking at their initial complaint. I must quote one part of it because hot damn. Um, they're suing here because of these disturbing sounds, which consist of the flushing of toilets, quote, water hammers generated from toilet flushing, scraping and vibrations from the opening and closing of the gates, banging of toilet store dolls, doors, hand dryer sounds, and banging when the park employees operate doors in the storage room, among other sounds. They also say it's noisy when the toilet is opened and closed because it's not open all the time. Um, and that these are not conditions that anyone should be forced to live under, certainly not a family with a young child and a senior citizen living in their own home. I mean. Okay. You know, and I think yeah, people, there, there was a bill introduced last month by council member Sandy Nurse to, for the city to have a comprehensive bathroom plan. She called it get shit done um, because we need more bathrooms. This is like a problem. There's, you know, there's the app got to go. There's, I follow the Instagram account trying to kind of say, Hey, this Starbucks over here, this is the code. This, that, the other thing. People got to go to the bathroom. I always think back when I, especially when I lived further, when I lived with my parents still, I would like leave my house, their house at like six 30 in the morning with a bag of stuff. And I would need to get changed. You know, you got to get changed. It's like you need places to. Yeah. I always knew where the bathrooms were. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the lack of bathrooms is also our larger sort of anti-houselessness, mm-hmm. a.k.a. formerly known as homeless people. But, you know, it's, it's like we have a real disdain for people who need services. And we see it every year. We whittle away at those services, as evidenced by the new Moynihan train station, where there's not a single seat to be had just to make sure that no houseless people come in and have a place to go. So everybody gets to stand up with their luggage because the architecture and the design is made to make sure that a certain element doesn't come in. So we see this time and time again where parks are getting less friendly to I would say people and families, but definitely houseless populations, even like the design of benches where you can't lay down, you know, and you want to make sure that people don't sleep on benches. All this is interconnected to the fact that you have a $5 million condo in a public place, essentially. And now they're like, well, we want it private. We want it private and quiet. It's like, well, if you've got $5 million, then you should have bought a place that's on a a side street or a side block. I mean, there's no dearth of $5 million condos for them to buy on a quiet street. So that's a perfect segue into our guest uh, this episode. Uh, State Senator Zellner Myrie returns to the pod. Thank you again for coming on. And we're looking at a moment when lots of newly arrived people in New York are looking to work, um, are having their mopeds and their bikes taken by the NYPD and are sometimes waiting outside of closed welcome centers, scrambling to find bathrooms. You just offered a really big and interesting idea. Well, the mayor is saying the problem is the feds won't speed up the process for migrants to get work permits. You're just asking why the state can't simply do that itself. And worse comes to worse, this gets challenged in court. And we were sorted out in three years or whenever. So do you want to talk a little about your proposal, the moment we're at now, and how New York City and state are doing? As the mayor's talking about big cuts, 
to the budget increasing spending he just passed in the middle of this as, as though we're in a brand new circumstance? Uh, yeah, and for, firstly, uh, it's it's always good to be on the podcast uh, uh, made by New Yorkers for New Yorkers. Uh, so good to, to to be with everyone. Um, go Queens! And, uh, <laughs> go Queens! Go Queens! Uh, so you know, this is a, a really interesting moment for our city. And and if I may uh, just talk a little uh, uh, from a personal perspective, you know, both of my parents came from Costa Rica. To this country about 45 years ago. Uh, both of them worked in factories. My mom worked in a garment factory in Williamsburg. My dad worked in a sponge making factory in Greenpoint. My dad ultimately became a public school teacher, taught in our system for 20 years. My mom went on to own a small business and then moved into the healthcare space. Uh, so I'm a first generation New Yorker. I went to public schools in Brooklyn, K through 12. I was born in a safety net hospital in Crown Heights. Uh, and these are the same schools, the same hospitals that are grappling with the challenges that we're seeing with our new New Yorkers. And uh, I was on the train uh, the other day on the Q train. Shout out to uh, all my Q train riders and uh, going over the Manhattan Bridge. Uh, and if you've read, you know, taken the Q train, you can see in the distance the Statue of Liberty. And last week, uh, as I was crossing the bridge, Statue of Liberty fully in view. Uh, there was a woman who uh, presumably was a new arrival here uh, with her child strapped to her back and her daughter helping her to sell candy. And uh, it reminded me of the days where I would go with my mom uh, to hair salons to sell bobby pins. And uh, this was part of what we did uh, because that was the dream of New York, that you could come uh, and that you could work. And this young woman came, sat down next to me. Uh, she was completely tired, didn't even realize that the kid that she had strapped to her back was on my arm. I could feel their skin. I could feel their heartbeat. And we all shared a New York moment uh, as her daughter, who was sitting across, was counting the money that they just made on that subway cart. Uh, and I think it encapsulated the conversation that we're having now. These are individuals who have made, in many instances, arduous journeys uh, from whichever country they have come from, uh, and they have come here because they want to work, uh, much like my parents, much like my grandparents, and much like millions of New Yorkers who have come before us. Uh, and we also have employers who are clamoring for entry-level positions, who want people to work, yet we are pointing uh, fingers, we are fear-mongering, uh, we are not coming up with solutions. And so I thought I'd offer a potential solution and something that I'm calling Work NYC. Uh, it can be called something else, uh, uh, depending on how it's administered. And the basic premise is providing uh, what is effectively a local work permit, uh, much like what we see with ID NYC, uh, local identification. Uh, it would match employers and potential employees, regardless of their citizenship status. Uh, and I think it would help jumpstart uh, individuals who are just anxious to work and provide for their families. Now, there are some, I think, legitimate legal concerns around that. And my position, as you alluded to, Harry, is if the federal government is refusing to help us, but instead want to sue us when we have come up with a solution, then we are happy to see them in court. Lots of people are working already, um, often in complicated and sort of off the books arrangements, like doing delivery app service where they're basically using somebody else's bank account and maybe moped to do that without papers. But this does beg the question about how important 
work permits are, and, and for that matter, uh, asylum applications, there seems to me sometimes to be a space between the paperwork conversation and what's actually happening in the city, if you might want to speak to that. Yeah, so what, what I've uh, proposed on the Work NYC front is if you are seeking asylum here, you would have to demonstrate that you have begun that process, that you have submitted that application uh, and that it, it's in the work. So the program conceptually uh, is inherently temporary uh, because if you were granted asylum, wonderful, uh, then you are here on a more permanent basis. Uh, and if not, then that is, uh, of course, a separate conversation. But the legitimizing of this economy that you're referencing, uh, Harry, uh, I think is really important for all New Yorkers. And you know, I'd like to make the point that um, this wouldn't just be available to our newest arrivals, uh, but would be available to everyone, just like IDNYC uh, is available to everyone, regardless of their citizenship status. Part of what is driving the fever pitch in this conversation, I think, are New Yorkers who were born here or who are citizens here, uh, who've also been failed by the city, who are also looking for housing, who are also looking for jobs, who are also looking for other economic opportunity, and thus far have not been able to do so. Uh, and I believe that not everyone that has concerns about uh, our newest New Yorkers are xenophobic. Uh, I don't think that they're all racist. Uh, I think that there are legitimate concerns that people have about services that have not been rendered to them, opportunities that have not been presented to them by the city. And so I envision this uh, as something that would work for all of New Yorkers, including uh, the folks who have just come. Senator, if I could ask, you know, uh, that was a good kind of lead up for my next question about Mayor Adams's the, the the tenor and tone of the way he's been speaking about migrants. And this has been a year long challenge for the city and it's a significant amount of people coming in. And like, you know, it, it's 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 not just racism and xenophobia. It's actual real challenges that the city's facing and in and, and taking care of, you know, it's been more than 100,000 people who've come. Um, but it seems over the last few weeks, the mayor has really ramped up the the tone of how he's addressing these people who've come here. Um, and I just wanted to get your take on, do you think there's some strategy behind that? Do you think it's just like a frustration that it's been going on for so long or there really has not been significant help from the federal government or the state? Um, just your take on that. And, and was there some shift? And, and if you think there's a reason why? Yeah, well, I think like many New Yorkers, I share in the mayor's frustration at the lack of action from the federal government. Uh, immigration is an inherently national and federal issue. Uh, it is largely within their jurisdiction to control, and uh, we have not gotten the assistance that we need. Uh, and so I share in that frustration, and I think uh, the polling and, and just my anecdotal conversations with New Yorkers reflect that as well. Uh, what I don't share uh, with the mayor is the tone and tenor of how that frustration is being communicated. Uh, one, you can only hold so many press conferences asking the federal government to do something that they're not going to do. Uh, and in the greatest city in the world, we shouldn't just be pleading uh, on this issue. I, I really think it is in our DNA to lead uh, in, in this instance. Uh, and leadership requires communication that does not increase the temperature in the room but brings it down so that cooler heads can prevail. Uh, and I, as I was mentioning earlier, as someone who is a son of immigrants, as someone who represents a large Caribbean and immigrant community, uh, that rhetoric, uh, I think, borderlines uh, on offensive for many of the people 
uh, that I represent. Uh, it is our story. Literally, the story of this city uh, is one of immigrants coming to make it great. Uh, and I think we have to be very, very cautious uh, when talking about uh, an issue that has the potential uh, to be explosive um, in a moment where we need cooler heads to prevail. So, Senator, dare I say, I've said it on record, my favorite senator. Um, <laughs> we we oftentimes talk about the city and federal government. And I want to get to the middle layer, which is Albany and Governor Hochul and you and your colleagues. because. Initially, Eric Adams had a lot of a lot of words for Joe Biden and not too many for Kathy Hochul. And now we've seen he's like, and you too, Kathy, where's the money? And so what are you and your colleagues doing? In some ways, it kind of feels like you all are in the middle. Um, her election is after the mayor's. So that puts her in a, a very different position uh, on host levels. She's also a governor, not a mayor, um, even though more people around the country know who he is and not Kathy Hochul. But where are you all as a body in Albany? Yeah. And the discussions in Albany, because Kathy Hochul, if she ever wants to get reelected, you know, the upstate folks don't like any of the money going to the city anyway on a good day. So definitely not for this, quote unquote, migrant crisis. And we know that Kathy Hochul knows that she can't have them being bussed up north because that ruins her chances for reelection. So I want to talk a little bit more about you, your colleagues, Albany and the Kathy Hochul piece with the Eric Adams rhetoric. It's, a, it's an excellent question. And, uh, you know, I think built into the premise there, Dr. Greer, is that this requires every single level of government to be working in uh, cohesion, working together to solve the problem. Uh, during the session uh, in May, when we passed the budget, the state, we allocated close to $1 billion to the city uh, to help deal with some of the challenges that they are facing. Uh, that is not nearly enough. I recognize that. Uh, and uh, if it were solely up to me, uh, we would be putting in more resources there. Uh, but I do think that the political question around who will bear the responsibility for this uh, is one that the governor uh, has been trying to avoid uh, and one that uh, we have seen in the litigation and in the court papers. There are, is a live and active debate about who the, who bears the legal responsibility. Uh, my personal feeling on this is that the entire state does bear the responsibility, and I do feel that there are jurisdictions uh, throughout the state that would welcome uh, these new arrivals. I mean, if you uh, think about this objectively for a second, uh, we have experienced population loss here in the city, uh, but that population loss has also occurred throughout regions of the state. Uh, and like the city, there are employers throughout the state that would love to have individuals come and who are ready to work and who could contribute to the local economy. Uh, and I do think that it requires some political leadership uh, that is currently lacking. Uh, this is not an easy question. Uh, we have seen, you know, various incidents uh, throughout the state where, you know, you would have one or two uh, new arrivals who may get caught up um, uh, uh, with uh, some criminal activity or or there are some uh, wayward uh, activities that, that people don't feel comfortable with. Uh, but that is the state that we live in. Um, uh, we all pay taxes into one pot, and that pot is distributed uh, throughout the state. It is not done proportionally. Uh, New York City uh, contributes 
uh, an overwhelming amount to the tax revenue uh, um, uh, pot. And, you know, just as we contribute, uh, I think it, it's also important that we receive that support when our uh, revenues are being um, uh, not not literally taxed, but physically taxed by the challenges that we are facing uh, with, with some of our new arrivals. And so uh, while difficult, uh, while potentially uh, politically um, uh, incendiary, uh, I do think that it is at these particular times where we need people to step up. And, you know, as we are, um, you know, around the anniversary of, of 9-11, you know, I think about how we united as a city and as a state uh, right after uh, that terrible, terrible tragedy that none of us will ever forget. Uh, I think challenges really show you who can step up and be the leader that, that we deserve. Uh, and I'm hoping uh, that eventually we will have some of that, uh, both from the state and the city level. So this brings me to my next question before I pull in Harry and Katie, because you use this great phrase, step up. And there are a lot of questions about who will step up. You know, the New York Times had that big piece about people eating beets in Staten Island and who's going to step up. (laughs) And I think, you know, we've seen your colleague on MSNBC saying somebody needs to step up. Somebody, anybody, everybody, nobody. Right. Where are we going with this? And so. The question is, I think primaries are healthy. I think de Blasio, I've said it before, de Blasio should have been primaried in 2017 by someone legitimate. Sorry, Sal Albanese, but not sorry. Right, I think that we should have had a healthy, robust primary for him to explain to us what he had done, what he planned to do. Because if not, we get what we got, which was he worked for two years and then took off for six. So I'm fine with someone challenging. I think I welcome someone challenging the mayor, we know that it will most likely come from the left because damn sure can't come from the right. That's called the Republican Party. So what, you know, obviously there's some names that always float around of people who are ambitious and intelligent, if we want to use that word that we hate, articulate, right? Um, but but in all seriousness, all seriousness, there there is a a percentage of New Yorkers that want to see someone who is to the left of the mayor leading the city. And even though his rhetoric may be incendiary, and even though many people may agree with it on the low low, um, there are others that just do not. They don't like the tone. They might like the message, but they don't like the tone. Um, Or they don't like the message and they want someone who is, I guess, more de Blasio-esque, even though we know de Blasio hired Bill Bratton, first order of business, stop and frisk mayor. So whatever they're looking for, they're looking for somebody, not Eric Adams. And not in the package of Eric Adams. And that's a whole different podcast that's a lot more complicated. Um, So where do you fall on the line? Because, you know, we keep our ears to the ground and your name clearly floats around here and there. Um, Is that something we know that your district two districts ago was Eric Adams district? I know that, you know, you understand that Eric Adams is a very savvy politician and he's also an incumbent. So as this conversation starts swirling and swirling, where do you fall on it? Uh, so so I'll say this. Uh, I'll start with, with something that you mentioned. I think primaries more broadly are healthy. Uh, as you know, and, and some of the listeners might know, uh, I ran uh, against an incumbent in 2018. Uh, so I do believe that there are moments uh, in our democracy where 
um, it's healthy to to have that conversation and to let the people choose. I will say uh, for me and for right now, my focus is wholly on being reelected next June and hopefully helping uh, the Democrats retake the House and uh, uh, hopefully then uh, being able to stay Speaker uh, Hakeem Jeffries. Um, uh, and, and, and that's where it is. I think there will be plenty of time uh, for politics after the presidential uh, election and after we um, uh, help uh, take back the House. But I will also say that I do want to be a part of the conversation and I do want to be a part of the solutions to some of our most pressing problems. Uh, and, and I'll also say that the voters in my district um, also want to be a part of that conversation. Uh, I have the good fortune of representing a, a highly active uh, district. And if you look at uh, the top 10 voter participation community districts uh, in the city, four of those top 10 are in my district. Uh, those are Brooklyn Community District 6, 7, 8, and 9, uh, representing Park Slope, Windsor Terrace, Crown Heights, and East Flatbush, respectively. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Um, so, uh, so, so I think we are going to be involved in this conversation one way or another, uh, uh, but I do think our focus right now uh, should be on solving our most pressing uh, challenges. And I think bringing some creativity um, and some leadership to the conversation uh, is certainly something that, uh, that I look forward to doing over the next couple of months. Harry, were you writing down that poll quote? No, <laughs> Just kidding. Hey, I mean, this. <clears throat> go ahead, Harry. Sorry. You, you've been associated a lot with uh, <clears throat> election reform, including early voting, closing the LLC loophole, <clears throat> and uh, real improvements on what, what to me seems very close to a uh, sham democracy at this point. But this year, you were involved in something that New York State now has a matching funds program, and the limit for that just went up to a match for the first 250, and this is inscrutable, I think, impenetrable to explain, I think on purpose, out of donations up to 2,000. So instead of boosting small donors, uh, you know, people are giving significant sums of money, like a month's rent for a lot of folks, you know, can still have public funds to match their donations. This also happened, incidentally, while a bunch of people who gave money to Mayor Adams just got caught up by a Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, by accident. Well, he was looking into some uh, WBME contract bullshit and found straw donor bullshit, as you know. So can you explain to me why this is good or necessary, this latest change or, or whatever, because it, it bothers me. Yeah. So um, I'll try to take both of those questions together, Harry. Uh, you know, I'll speak first uh, more broadly about the uh, public matching concept uh, and, and why I believe in it and support it and think it's important. You know, you look at the current construction of our city council prior to 2021, I believe it was 13 women that were on the council. Uh, and post-2021 election, we are now, for the first time in the city's history, uh, we have a majority of the council uh, with women representatives. Uh, and I think that that speaks for itself uh, in what the impact of the program is. Uh, there was reporting um, and also the facts support this. When you look at the mayoral runs of Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley, individuals who had not been in office, individuals who had not been raising money for years uh, in anticipation of this run, they were able to compete and compete in a real way because of the public matching system. Uh, so I do believe that it is merited. Um, it is something that many New Yorkers, and when I say uh, not the candidates, just New Yorkers 
uh, generally, I think 71% of the contributions come from New York City uh, residents. Uh, this is something that they have, have grown accustomed to. Uh, that said, uh, I think that you know there's always room for improvement uh, and room for accountability. And when you look at uh, some of what has been reported on, um, you know, and I think Katie has done uh, some really excellent work uh, reporting on on some of this. Uh, none of us want to see the uh, program taken advantage of. None of us want to see our hard-earned taxpayer dollars spent in a fraudulent way. Uh, but I don't think that that means that we should get rid of the program writ large. We see fraud in other contexts, right? We, when people um, apply for food benefits or SNAP benefits, um, we there is fraud in that space, but there is that rarely the suggestion that we should get rid of the entire program because some individuals take advantage of it. Um, and I view public matching uh, in a similar way. Now on the state level, uh, this program uh, not yet uh, in, in, in effect um, uh, or not yet the, the matching funds have not been dispersed uh, for this next election cycle. And we made some changes at the end of the legislative session uh, to try to address some of the concerns before those disbursements were made. And you mentioned uh, that we increased the limit that would allow for the matching up to $250. I understand why uh, that increase for some uh, is perceived as a weakening of the, the, the effort. But I will point out that the New York City model also has the same threshold uh, and you can contribute up to $250 um, and have that matched uh, as well. And I think there are some inherent differences, you know, one of them being these are larger districts, uh, at least for the upper house um, and for the statewide um, uh, uh, elections. And, you know, I think this is just the first iteration of this program. Uh, it will continue to evolve and we will continue to make the changes as we see fit. I'll remind uh, New Yorkers that the current city matching program is 35 years old. And when that program first started, uh, you had matchable donations up to $1,000, uh, and it was a one-for-one -one match. Uh, the city council subsequently made changes, saw that maybe that's not the best model, uh, and we are now at eight-to-one um, in the 250 that I that, that I mentioned. And so I, I believe the same thing will happen with our state system, uh, that we will evolve uh, and, and get to the best outcome uh, for the taxpayer and for our democracy. I, I guess the question is that, you know, I know you brought up the the makeup of the city council and its diversity, and that is one benefit, right? Having it not just be the wealthiest people get elected to higher office, but what do you say to the critics of more matching funds and the expansion of the program, especially when you look at a city that's having financial challenges, we're cutting the budget, we're, we're doing citywide cuts, and sometimes I see all the money going into different candidates who don't get many votes, and I think... I believe in democracy, but this was a lot of money to spend for for somebody. I don't know if you want to just quickly answer any criticism that some people might have. Yeah, no, Katie, I think that's fair. And, and you know, I think most New Yorkers don't have a clue about what public matching is. Uh, they don't necessarily care about uh, public matching. And uh, for those of us who, you know, eat and breathe uh, politics, it's something that is at the fore of our minds, but for everyday folks, they might see that we spent $100 million uh, to give individuals uh, money to run for office, and then they might look at their library and say, well, we haven't had an upgrade in this library uh, for five to 10 years. Why are we spending it here and not there? And, and I don't think that's an 
illegitimate concern, my immediate response uh, would be that our investments in our democracy end up helping with policies across the board. And so when you get better candidates, you get better policies. When you get candidates that don't feel beholden just to big donors, uh, but feel beholden to their district, uh, then they will perform things that are in the best interest uh, of that district. Uh, and I would also say uh, that we need to continue to invest in these other services uh, such that individuals aren't looking and saying, well, how come we haven't been provided um, with, with some of the basic essentials that government is supposed to give us? And just one other follow-up, since I mentioned these sort of budget cuts and you mentioned the service cuts, I just wanted to get your take. I know, I mean, you're not a city legislator, but just your take on these continued um, budget cuts across the city. Uh, you know, I know when it comes to a constituent, most people don't know where it's coming from. They just know that their services are reduced. But, um, you know, if you think there's a different way to address some of the city's financial challenges or anything like that. But uh, we are in a, a pretty challenging time, and we were buoyed by federal uh, COVID relief funding for a couple of years now. Uh, that funding is uh, coming quickly to an end, and I think we will, in fact, have to have some hard conversations about how we're spending our tax dollars. Uh, but I have never seen the approach of austerity being productive in the long run. Uh, to me, that has always been short-sighted uh, and has ended up hurting us uh, in the long term uh, in, instead of remaining invested in some of the things that everyday New Yorkers need. You know, my understanding is that in New York City, it's such a big budget. We spend close to $300 million a day uh, on all of our collective services. A lot of that goes to education. A lot of that goes to health care. A lot of that goes to keeping people safe. Um, uh, but we spend a much smaller portion of that um, being forward-looking. And uh, my uh, take on uh, whether or not and where we should be cutting, uh, I think, uh, should be informed by the facts, all of which I don't uh, have. But I will say that there are some investments that don't look like they will pay off uh, right now, but end up having longer-term um, uh, impacts. And you know, one of the things that Dr. Greer mentioned um, about you know universal pre-K and the Blasio's legacy, um, that is something that we uh, see a, a short-term uh, impact in that it provides childcare. Um, you know, and there was a, a very great piece in the in the Times um, about how that has become unaffordable uh, for the vast majority of New Yorkers. That is something that that, that we have seen uh, an immediate impact and relief to families. Uh, but we are going to see the longer-term impacts when those kids are grown up um, and they have different trajectories than they would have had there not been that child care provision, uh, I would like to see a similar effort for after-school programs. Uh, I think that every kid that wants to be in an after-school program should be in an after-school program. It's what helped save me. My mom uh, was out working day and night, uh, but I was able to be at the Crown Heights Youth Collective um, that allowed for me to like, you know, give her some relief that everything was going to be okay. Um, that's a payoff, I think, uh, that we won't see immediately. It will be expensive for us to do. Uh, but in the long run, uh, I think it's going to be something uh, that people will benefit from. And I think New Yorkers understand that. I think if we talk to people, uh, not you know, not at them, uh, but with them, uh, I think that we uh, collectively can understand that investments now will pay off later uh, and austerity is not necessarily the way to go. So closing question here. Um, and going back to your daily news piece, um, which is titled Create an NYC Migrant Work Permit, Let the Newcomers Get Paying Jobs. 
So some of the pushback here, you mentioned some of the COVID emergency stuff that happened, like letting uh, uh, students start to practice medicine, for instance. But there was a bunch of that. There's a bunch of programs here, as you know, that are getting paid for with uh, emergency aid. Or in fact, as you mentioned, and that aid's going to go away, and then there's going to be a question of how we pay. And you also bring up uh, NYCID. And I remember when that was initially getting discussed, it's like, well, what if we have like some horrible Republican president? Isn't this like a, a database for them? And ah, what are the odds of that in the conversation of the time? So two people we want to say <clears throat> we can't have an endless series of states of emergency. Um, but uh, any sort of work permits would it be an incentive for more people to arrive when the mayor at least says those numbers are overwhelming the city and wants to push back on those premises. Uh, what, what's your response? Well, well, I think part of my response uh, harks back to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, individuals are already working. Uh, they are doing so uh, oftentimes in dangerous conditions uh, and in really vulnerable conditions because there is no official documentation. It allows for exploitation uh, and uh, it allows for things that we I don't think any New Yorker wants to see. And so there is a component of this that is bringing uh, into the light what has thus far been in the dark that we've all sort of accepted. Uh, and on the notion of incentivizing more individuals to come, they're already here and they're already coming. Uh, and I think the 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 moment that we're in uh, in this city uh, is to recognize that we can't wait for anybody else to come and save us. We have to deal with this problem now. Uh, this is the solution for now. It is not a permanent solution. Uh, we would love to see help from the federal government. I'd love to have those resources. I'd love to have them expedite the work permits. I was at that press conference with the mayor uh, that he held uh, a week or two uh, ago. I, I believe that we need that help uh, from, from the federal government. Uh, but in the interim, uh, we are still having the challenges that we have now. Uh, and if we have employers that want to put people to work and we have new New Yorkers that want to work, we have to find a way to marry the two and allow for the local economy to thrive. You know, we're just coming off of the West Indian Day uh, parade uh, festival and all the activities that happened uh, around that. And um, I was a participant both as the senator representing uh, the entirety of the parade, but also as a son of Caribbean people. And I was jumping up and down on the parkway and in, you know, at Juve and having a good time. But what you we saw float, from right? that, I did have a float. I did have a float. Uh, but what we saw from, from that's just one example, $300 million in revenue that parade and the surrounding activities brings to the city. Uh, that is a perfect example to me of the economic power uh, that our immigrant community has and the, the potential uh, that they have to contribute to, to our local economy. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's step up. Let's get them in uh, the, the the right order, the right framework, um, so that we can all uh, have that benefit accrue to the city. Senator, thank you again for joining us and uh, taking the time. Appreciate it. And uh, that you go into some substance. Uh, on some of these issues. I'm, I'm really grateful uh, to, to be with y'all and I always have a good time. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. 
Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We also receive support from PT Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. We're a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com and are affiliated with the Colin Powell School at CUNY City College, where I am, Chris Greer, one of the inaugural fellows. Our hosts this episode were Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer, and Katie Honan. Our engineer is Adam Kamara, and a special thank you to our guest, State Senator Zellner Myrie. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, be warm, and we'll be back soon with more.